The Beginning of Infinity, my first reading. Why did I read this book? Naval Ravikant, a technologist and preacher of wealth, uh, some preachings on nav.al, recommends this book as one of the most important to read. Naval's approach towards reading is that he would prefer to read 100 books many times each than read thousands of books just one time. And I think that this logic makes sense because in my experience too, the best books and films bring about new learning or entertainment every time you read them. What was it like for me reading this book by David Deutsch? So a lot of the chapters, such as the one covering the nature of infinity and another covering quantum entanglement were impossible for me to understand. Um, David Deutsch's primary premise for the book is that everything in the world, universe and beyond has the potential to be understood. And that's a claim that you couldn't prove, but ultimately uh, no explanation can be entirely proven. It can only be checked for consistency against other explanations. So if you were confused by my last sentence, that's exactly how I felt while reading 75% of this book. Still, there was about 25% of the book that I understood. And Deutsch has quite a few good takes, uh, many inspired by Karl Popper, who's a philosopher from the late 1900s. Uh, this is a breakdown. It's going to be a longer podcast than usual, probably at least 10 minutes of what I've understood so far. I don't have the intellectual background to be able to refute many of these arguments. So I'm just presenting them largely as David Deutsch does and providing only what minor challenges to them that I can. All right, so let's get started. Justified belief versus fallibilism. When it comes to knowledge, we often refer to something being true when it is deemed true by some higher authority. This may have been a god or a high priest proclaiming a truth of how the world was created. Or in more recent times, it might be the World Health Organization on how COVID-19 is spread or the International Monetary Fund on how third world economies should run their economies. And these are both my examples, not Deutsch's. So historically, we had trust the gods. And now we sometimes have trust the scientists or trust the experts. In cases like this, where truths are defined by appealing to some higher power, the approach is called justificationism. Now, the alternative to justificationism is fallibilism. The idea that there is no way to fully prove any explanation and that all explanations are error prone. Importantly, fallibilism does not mean that we can't explain anything. It means that we have to always expect we could be wrong. Fallibilism also does not mean that all explanations are equal. There is a hierarchy in the quality of explanations and that hierarchy is in how universal or difficult to vary an explanation is. For example, Newton's classical theories of gravity were good, but Einstein's are much more general. And I'll touch more on this hierarchy of explanations in the next section. For the next section, uh, the scientific method is not just about being testable. Deutsch Pounds points out that we often think about the scientific method as putting emphasis on testing our predictions, but he says testability is not enough. For him, and I think Karl Popper, the scientific method is about more than just being able to make predictions. For example, you might be able to predict that a bird will reappear at the end of a magician's trick. You might even observe that repeatedly and predict that it's going to happen repeatedly and that might be borne out empirically. And others might be able to test your prediction and show that you're correct. 
However, that's not the scientific method because you may still not know how the trick works. So this belief that science can only provide predictions but not uh, explanations is called instrumentalism. And it's inherent anytime we draw a graph of two variables without providing an underlying explanation. The scientific method, according to Deutsch, is about explanations for causation, not just demonstrations of correlation or prediction, which he would call instrumentalism. As a little aside here on instrumentalism, the statement, this is my truth, can be interpreted as a form of instrumentalism. It takes an approach that there are no underlying explanations uh, that can objectively be considered. There are just predictions and occurrences and all explanations are entirely subjective and depend on your personal point of view. So that's not the scientific method, according to Deutsch, because the scientific method relies on there being explanations, uh, objective explanations that have a hierarchy. So zooming back out for Deutsch, the scientific method involves explanations that are testable. Um, and as I just mentioned, they do have a hierarchy and not all explanations are equal. And the way that hierarchy is determined is by looking at how difficult the explanation is to vary. So what's he mean by that? Let me start by an explanation that's easy to vary. So consider an explanation whereby global warming is explained by a god, Athens, um, Athena. And Athena becomes angry when humans emit carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And when we emit CO2, she causes heat to be retained close to the Earth's surface. All right. Now, you might argue this uh, Athena theory is not testable, not least because there's no precise description of how she retains heat close to the Earth. But it is testable in some ways. Uh, you could monitor CO2 emissions and heat flows, and you could determine that Athena's prediction of what happens is correct. Conversely, there are aspects of what we consider good explanations that are often not testable. For example, we can test the absorbing and emitting properties of carbon dioxide, but if we want to emphatically prove the greenhouse effect, we can't conduct an experiment that would independently vary the carbon dioxide content of the atmosphere while holding all else constant. So even good theories can't be tested in every way. So what is it then that would make a greenhouse effect explanation better than the Athena explanation? Well, the answer is that the greenhouse theory, in that theory, the details play a precise role in the explanation and they're hard to vary. And that's unlike Athena's anger, which is an imprecise factor and easy to vary and fudge it around. And that makes it an inferior explanation. So that's what Deutsch means when he says good explanations are difficult to vary, they're precise. Moving on to a later chapter, Edison's 99% perspiration was not mindless. So there is a saying that's well known, attributed to Thomas Edison of light bulb and GE fame, that invention is 99% perspiration and 1% inspiration. Deutsch argues that the 99% perspiration is in fact creative work. It typically involves human thought, he says, not mindless work that a computer could do. 
if a portion of that 99% perspiration can be done by computers, it's only because something was learned by humans when they did that perspiration and programmed the computer. So by definition, if something has been automated, the fact that the humans can automate it means that they had to have had some learning, creativity, innovation in the work. So it wasn't really perspiration. In short, if a portion of perspiration can be automated, then there was learning in that perspiration, which really makes it inspiration. Moving on, Deutsch makes the point um, that creationism will become an unremarkable attribute of a god. Virtual reality will become so good that we will be able to recreate a high fidelity version of life on Earth. At that point, it will be unremarkable for a god to have created the Earth. Genes and memes. No, not the kind of meme you're thinking of. Deutsch makes the case that there are two pieces to human progress. First, genetic evolution, which is a slow phenomenon. And second, ideas, which he calls memes or knowledge. The more rapid phenomenon that has driven human progress over the last few thousand and particularly few hundred years. Human genetics provided a platform allowing humans to develop ideas and pass those ideas down through generations as knowledge. Over the last thousands of years, our genes haven't changed much, um, but our memes or our ideas have changed a lot. Why then have humans seen such strong technological progress in the last hundred years as compared to the last thousand? Because our genetics were just as good a thousand years ago. Well, Deutsch's argument is that we have long had the capacity to build an infinite data bank of ideas. So our genes were there, but we didn't always have the culture of criticism that he thinks is crucial to allow the growth of ideas. So while there have been critical cultures in periods before, like the Medici's in Italy in the 15th century, they did not last or develop technologically as the West has done since the Enlightenment. So what could be some alternate theories to Deutsch's about why knowledge has only very recently expanded? Well, one is a genetic improvement theory, which is that humans adapted through evolution very suddenly over the last one or 200 years. But this seems unlikely because genetics just don't evolve that fast, at least uh, in the natural form. Another theory is a triggering technological event. For example, uh, the discovery of the printing press, which allowed proliferation, proliferation of ideas. A counter argument here, though, is that while books and information were pivotal to growth and still are, uh, a lot of technical progress didn't occur for some centuries after Gutenberg's printing press in the 15th century. So even when it was there, there wasn't the rate of progress. Uh, there are also a lot of other discoveries you could pretty much equally point to, steam engine, algebra, electricity. Um, and it's difficult to place just one discovery above all the others. If we can't just pick out one triggering discovery, then we revert to the question of why there seems to have been a collection of discoveries that are very concentrated in the most recent centuries. Another theory is around geography. So in the book, Guns, Germs and Steel, Jared Diamond makes the argument that progress depended on geographical factors, such as animals being available for domestication in Europe, but not so much in Africa or South America. Uh, empirically somewhat true. Um, as I see it, 
this seems a little bit like the triggering technological event, except instead of a triggering technology, there's a triggering geographical factor like presence of animals or good weather or good terrain. But the geographical factors have been around for quite a bit longer than the recent technological progress. So the theory doesn't fully explain the question of, well, why now? Why over the last 100 or 200 years have we seen progress? Why not? Uh, why at the end of the last century and not at the start of the millennium or not at zero BC? So moving back to Deutsch's argument that ideas drove progress and that the growth of ideas has emerged from society's allowing criticism. Back in zero BC or even before then, humans had the genetics to create knowledge just the way we're doing now, but they didn't. So why didn't they? Because their societies didn't encourage critical thinking, says Deutsch. Well then, why didn't those societies allow critical thinking? And why did later societies allow critical thinking? That's not clear. And to be fair, Deutsch is clear that this is a difficult and unanswered question. The low hanging fruit in science and engineering is not gone. Going through a PhD in mechanical engineering and making use of equations that Sadie Carnot invented in the 18th century, I could only think that all of the low-hanging fruit in science and engineering was gone. Richard Feynman seems to have subscribed to a similar view, not saying I'm on his level, but he uh, felt there could only be a finite amount of theories and that pretty soon we'd have them all discovered. Deutsch's philosophy is the exact opposite to Feynman and me during my PhD. He felt that uh, he feels that there are infinite theories that remain to be discovered, and so we're not even close to the end. In fact, if there are infinite theories and explanations, we'll always be close to the beginning. So what's Deutsch's basis for this? Well, first of all, he points to all of those who have proclaimed the end of science before, only to be proven wrong. good example is scientist Albert Mitchelson of the Mitchelson-Morley experiment fame, who in 1894 proclaimed that all physics that remained to be discovered was about the sixth decimal place. In other words, the low-hanging fruit was gone, and all that remained were minor tweaks and to explanations and discoveries. Second, and a rather technical point, we still do not have reconciliation of quantum theory and general relativity. This is a it's a clear and known gap in our knowledge of one of the most universal theories we've had to date. And third of all. It's been common in our past for theories that were widely accepted to be replaced by completely new frameworks. Uh, Gren pulling from Newton, he had his theory of gravity that was replaced by Einstein's relativity. And while a lot of Newton's theory is a good approximation for behaviors on Earth um, and, and off Earth, Einstein's theory is more universal and very different mathematically. So definitely left that chapter of Deutsch's book with more optimism than uh, when I finished my PhD. The drawbacks of proportional representation. Changing gears a little on this one. Today, many countries are migrating towards proportional representation, as we have in Ireland. The touted virtue of proportional representation is that it does a better job of representing minorities, which is true. Deutsch makes a number of counterpoints, though. Deutsch, taken from Karl Popper, believes government should be designed such that rulers can be removed without violence if they're doing a bad job. Proportional representation means that governments are often composed of a coalition, making it difficult to remove the entire government from power. Inevitably, some of the parties in power often stay on. Furthermore, proportional representation gives disproportionate power to the kingmaker parties, 
those that are often third or fourth in the polls and determine which larger party is in power. This means that the top polling parties are less incentivized to adapt their policies to the public as their goals shift towards accommodating minority partners. And seeing the Irish system, and I believe the Israeli and Dutch systems are similar, I can appreciate Deutsch's point here. Points rather. What does this mean? Uh, what does this aside on political systems have to do with the growth of knowledge? Well, for Deutsch, political systems should not solely be about who's in charge. They should allow for the testing of different options that build upon knowledge and allow for the bad options of government to be ditched. Question for Deutsch is not, is a democracy or a dictator or a monarchy better? Or is group X or group Y or group Z better? Question is, which system allows for bad systems or policies to peacefully be cycled out? I won't get into the discussion here, but Deutsch additionally makes the point that any system of representation will have logical inconsistencies, meaning that achieving fair representation cannot be the core goal of a political system. Improvement of knowledge can be the goal. It was a tragedy that Easter Islanders survived for so long. I'm going to finish on this example from one of Deutsch's final book chapters. Deutsch tells the story of two documentaries about Easter Island, an island where the civilization went extinct in the midst of building large stone monuments. The first is by Jacob Bronowski, commissioned by David Attenborough and called The Ascent of Man. And it portrays a civilization that failed in making sufficient technological progress to survive. The second is by David Attenborough himself, uh, more, recent, more recent, about two decades later, and called The State of the Planet. It draws a parallel between how Easter Island civilization died as it did not look after their environment, much as today we face extinction if we don't, do not look after planet Earth. For Attenborough's recent documentary, the extinction of Easter Island civilization was a tragedy. But for Bronowski, the fact that Easter Island civilization survived for as long as it did was a tragedy. Whereas Attenborough sees a failure of responsibility to the planet, Bronowski sees a failure of responsibility to themselves as their population suffered needlessly, building pointless stone monoliths rather than thinking critically about how to advance their civilization. Deutsch sees them as a static society. You might think that both Attenborough and Bronowski, the two documentaries, are arguing for the same thing, but Deutsch thinks not. Attenborough is saying to go backwards to a life that is more sustainable, and Bernowski is saying to go forwards and progress to the next level of technology. In doing so, Deutsch raises the question, what is the basis for sustainability? Should sustainability be built on, be based upon living standards of the 1800s or the 1900s or the 2000s? Or is sustainability the wrong approach? For Deutsch, the answer is not sustainability, it is infinite progress. <laughs>